Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with the writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. The title of the book, this book of poetry, Look Beyond. And the poet is David Meyerhoff, and David joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, David. Hello. Uh, great to have you with us, and we're looking forward to hearing your poetry. We'll do that uh, later. Uh, right at the moment, I'd just like to read a few things for everyone, just to get an idea of about what David's poetry is all about in his book, Look Beyond, you say this, How can you cope with an emotional upheaval in your life? My book, Look Beyond, explores that question and offers ways of helping you. It's a a journey you call of self-discovery and empowerment. Poems are based on real-life situations, People, events, and thoughts grounded in down-to-earth reality. This is a life-changing kind of book of poetry, wouldn't you say? Yes. Well, it's based on my life primarily in terms of uh, what's happened to me. Um, I'm presenting my thoughts, my ideas, and my feelings to the world. Well, first of all, David, uh, tell us about yourself, your background, and why you decided to do this. Well, um, I was a middle school teacher uh, for 33 years in the Los Angeles Unified School District. I taught math and science to sixth grade honors students. Um, But it's something in my family in terms of writing poetry. My grandfather wrote poetry. My father wrote poetry. I write poetry. My son writes poetry. So it's something that we have, and I was trying to find a vehicle for presenting my thoughts um, and my feelings to the rest of the world. Um, I retired about one and a half years ago, and so this was a project that I really felt um, was needed for me and uh, what I wanted to do with my life. Well, it sounds like you're literally on a mission because you say, I would like to change the world through my poetry. Now, that's quite a mission. Yes. um, I know, of course, it sounds idealistic, but I think I can do it because um, everyone who's read my book likes it so far. And I've had um, several people who've read my book, they keep it next to their bedstand or they keep it on the coffee table. And they go back to it more than once when they have a difficult situation. They go back and read my poetry um, to help them. And I could prove that to you right now if you'd like to hear it. Please, please. Uh, Okay, so my poem that I'd first like to read um, is called Step Up to the Plate. No one knows when or where you will be called upon to step up to the plate. And maybe soon it may be late, but you won't have a choice. It will be you, your own voice. Decisions will have to be made, way out in the sun or close by in the shade. The groundwork must be laid out. Give it your all without a doubt. You know they are counting on you, all that you say, all that you do. So do not sit back and wait. It's not your choice. It's your fate. 
It's your world you must create. So don't hesitate. Step up to the plate. I like it. Yeah, that's that's what you call your signature poem. Yes. It kind of sets the tone for the whole book, Look Beyond. Yes. Well, we all know that life is filled with adversity. There's no one I believe escapes that at all. And you just want to help everyone realize through your poetry that they can overcome the adversity because so many people often feel immobilized. Yes. I mean, um, my father had Parkinson's. Um, This was uh, about eight years ago. And six years ago, he passed away. In the last two months of his life, I wrote a poem every night. I couldn't sleep. I'd wake up around 3 o'clock in the morning, and I'd write a poem, and then I could go back to sleep. So 27 of those poems are in my book. Um, If you'd like to hear one of those. Please. uh, This is called Poem to My Father. Is the rain washing away the tears, or is it creating more tears? Are we breaking our hearts, or are we having our hearts broken? Down the gullies, through the forest, washing, washing, taking away our sorrows. Do we know what we see, hear, taste, smell, or touch? Can we be part of this beautiful world, or must we carry this heaviness throughout our lives? Are we facing reality in front of our faces, or are we running from what will catch us in the end? Life is as precious as every single drop of rain, every grain of sand, every star in the sky, every leaf on the tree, and every soul on this planet. Yes, yes. So when we look for the future, uh, when we just kind of contemplate the challenges that everyone seems to be facing in this very complex, confusing world, uh, you see hope. Yes. Uh, You see hope, but it won't come... uh, Without a struggle, I mean, in order for us to improve as one of your themes, uh, there's probably going to be a struggle. Yes. In fact, I have a poem called The Future. Oh, okay. Very good. What about the future? What does it pretend? A new beginning or an inglorious end? A place of rebirth and flowery grace or a shadowy inferno, a damning place? Are we not imbued with destiny and veiled? Are we not letting our spirits be derailed? We cannot flounder or fall on the ground. There's so much to learn, so much to be found. Our hearts must go ahead. Our desire for knowledge must be fed. There is no time to stop or delay. We are bursting with pride. We will not stray. We grasp with all our might that uplifting passion, that brilliant light. We climb the tallest tower, the highest peak, our steps of life. Our future is what we seek. Mm, Very well said. So in order to bring this change about, we need to reach deep. And that takes courage, doesn't it? As you point out, that takes courage. You know, you pointed out with your poetry. Yes. I mean, I, I believe that there's a spark inside every person on this planet that needs to come out. And I will do whatever I can to bring that out. And I feel I can do that through my poetry. I can do that through presenting my life story also to people. And so once that comes out, then you can deal with it and you can create it, you can uh, develop it. And I've always encouraged everybody I've met that when you have problems and situations that you write it down, that you draw, 
that you get it out because if you keep it inside, it will hurt you and it will go not have a good end to it. And you really believe, sounds like with all your heart, that one person, like yourself, one person can really make a difference. Yes. Um, my father was rescued um, from Germany, um, and my grandparents were rescued by a man named Varian Fry. Varian Fry uh, rescued 2,000 Jewish people from Germany, including Mark Chagall. So my father um, created a foundation to educate people about Varian Fry, and one thing that he said is that one person can make a difference in the world. And he was talking about Varian Fry because this one person sacrificed, practically sacrificed his life to save 2,000 people, but I would like to be that person also in maybe a slightly different way. Well, you couldn't ask for a greater noble cause than doing what he did, obviously, uh, he will be blessed and sure is blessed for doing that. Your 60, collection of 60 thought-provoking poems, this journey of self-discovery and empowerment. Why don't you share another one with us? Okay. Um, well, this will be a little bit lighter, um, and it's called Hugs. Why is it that hugs are so great? Why are they worth their weight in gold? Well, you know they never grow old. Is it the tender warmth that hugs provide, or the meaning, the feeling inside? Yes, all of the above and more, they open the human door. Relatives, friends, comrades all, open your arms, break down that wall, reach out and hold your fellow being, open your eyes beyond what you are seeing. A simple yet beautiful act, a journey of one's soul, a basic fact. When you connect and surround, you join a better world so profound. Well, hugs always seem to make all the pain go away. <laughs> yes, the hugs are great. Uh, seems like when I get hugs from my grandkids, what more do you need? <laughs> you <know>? Yes. <laughs> yeah, they're magic. Well, um, it's going to take courage, as you point out. Uh, we've just got to challenge ourselves, that's what you write, to improve the quality of life in our world. So it's, it's really, uh, like you say, we, all make it, we can all make a difference, but it really comes down to that one person challenging themselves. That's a, that's a, a, a big challenge in itself, just to think about that. Yes. I mean, um, I, my mother fell about a year ago and broke her hip, um, and she's going to be 92 in one month. Uh, she's under 24-hour care. So the day that she fell, I wrote the first poem in my book, and it's called, When Your World is Turned Upside Down, How Do You Make It Right Side Up? When your world is turned upside down, what do you do? Get out of town? No, you take steps forward, keeping your head up and toward. Gather your forces all. Stand up. Stand tall. Your heart must move along. Prepare to right the wrong. No one said it was easy or fair, but you can fight it if you dare. Be ready to meet every turn. From each action you will learn. So go forward still. Push ahead. Strengthen your will. The world does await. Now go. Decide your own fate. Very good. Now, this is the first book of poetry. Uh, you have another one in the making. 
Well, I hope uh, after a while that um, I'd like to write a, a poems about love. And I have, for example, a poem, um, How Do You Fall in Love? And I'll tell you how. I have a, can I talk about my Facebook? And my sure, husband? please, tell us. Yeah, so I have a Facebook, and I'd love to hear from people. Um, it's after, you know, www.facebook.com slash David Meyerhoff, and it's M-E-Y-E-R-H-O-F, and then Look Beyond. It's all together, David Meyerhoff, Look Beyond. And I'm on Twitter. Um, the handle is underscore Look Beyond. My webpage is uh, lookbeyondpoetry.com. Very good, David. Very good. And also, of course, uh, the publisher, Ex Libris, you can get it from there. Of course, you can go to any online bookstore or walk into any bookstore and order Look Beyond. Uh, why don't you close with one last poem? Okay. Um, well, the other thing is, that I want to say is I believe in love. Um, I'm talking about universal love of everybody. The question, this is called For Love. The question, the question today is, what will you do for love? Will you sit back and let it just happen? Will you go out and make that effort, that effect, that reason, that show of true belief? I will stake everything I know, believe, think, feel, understand, carry, perceive, grasp, and embrace for love the ultimate on this earth, this paradise for humanity, which against all odds must be based on love. As the song go goes, love don't come easy. No, it certainly don't come easy, but we stake our lives on it. What are you willing to do for love? We must endure. We must sacrifice. Give our spirit to the ultimate line drawn on the ground. We will give all so that the generations will live, breathe, and love. We've been listening to David Meyerhoff. He is the poet, and his book, Look Beyond, 60 Thought-Provoking Poems. David, you've already told us to how to get your book. Uh, any closing thoughts? Well, um, like I said, I'd like my poems to change the world, and I believe that can be done one person at a time. And I believe that any, everybody who has my book will enjoy it, and it will help you. I, guarantee, I can guarantee that. Thank you so much, David, for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Thank you very much. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Have you ever wondered why America is facing such a health care crisis? Then join us for Dr. Peter DeVette Live. Every weekday at 1 p.m. Central on toginet.com. He'll answer your health care and medical questions and share with you his knowledge and opinions on topics ranging from holistic health care to spirituality and wellness. You'll find out about the roots of your health care challenges versus symptom management, the holistic approach, how the spirit, mind, and body connection is critical in both the development of illness and the solution to illness, how emotions are directly related to physical illness, and how to read your body like a book. Dr. DeVette will also go through your personal questions and how you can navigate through the illness maze. Supplements, medications, therapies, treatment options, surgeries, all kinds of things related to your health. Dr. Peter DeVent Live. 
every weekday at 1 p.m. Central on toginet.com. We often ask, is that all there is? Why is this happening to me? Why am I always broke? How am I going to survive this mess? Then join Dr. Geraldine Tegeloff for Nature Spirits Speak, 7 p.m. Tuesday evenings on toginet.com. Geraldine is a metaphysician, nature intuitive, and prosperity coach who shares with you how she went from totally broke to living what she would call her perfectly prosperous life. Through the combination of a wealth of metaphysical knowledge and her amazing ability as an intuitive, Geraldine brings to you the secrets of her magical journey of healing emotionally, spiritually, and financially. As with the ancient seers and master teachers, Geraldine has a unique gift of being able to connect to the simple yet profound messages brought to us by Mother Nature, and happily shares these through today's note to self on her webpage, naturespiritspeak.com. If you need help with your journey, why not connect with Geraldine during her show, Nature Spirit Speak, Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Luck of the Irish, poignant saga of an Irish family arriving in England just at the outbreak of World War II. And the author is Ronnie Carroll. And Ronnie joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Ronnie. Hello, Steve. Nice to speak to you. Well, great to have you with us. Uh, this, in essence, is your autobiography and also a story of your whole family at a very, very critical stage of the war and you landing, as you say, arriving in England just as the war starts and just tears the family apart. Let me, let me uh, read a couple things. Again, the, the, how you describe this, just to kind of set the stage for everyone. Okay. My, my story, as you write, describes the poor conditions existing in the west of Ireland in 1939. The difficulties of migrating to London, England, and the shock of realizing that we had spent our remaining and limited resources only to reach the insecurity of England just entering World War II. The government immediately ordered all children to be evacuated out of London. And of course, that meant being torn from your mom and dad and given to these foster parents. You didn't know who they were at all. Not at all. They were strangers to us and not very welcoming either. They just wanted the money. The government was paying quite uh, an attractive sum of money to persuade people to take the evacuees in as lodges. They had no other, there was no other measurement about the ability or, or knowledge of, uh, of um, foster parents, how to foster children. And so we were left in the hands of complete amateurs. And it just showed. And your mother must have been destroyed by all of oh, this. It was terrible as we were in the bus waiting to go off to the station. You uh, were about 20 minutes before the bus moved off, and throughout that time, she was sobbing outside. Mm-hmm. It was heartbreaking. Right. Her eyes were red and swollen, and tears running down her face. Here she thought, and I'm sure... do about it. I'm sure the whole family thought, well, you've, you've gotten out of Ireland. That must have been some, obviously, problems there, because you come to England, and then you get right into a, a worst-case situation. Yes. Absolutely, Steve. Absolutely. 
So you you practically well you say you've run out of money too. Oh yes, completely broke. We were virtually uh, you know bankrupt, but not bankrupt as such, but we had we were penniless. Right. And but but for the fact of uh, there was a, a Roman Catholic church in 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 that part of London where we were uh, had rented a, a house, who immediately telephoned. It was in the period of Lent when everyone was trying to be more helpful, religiously speaking. And uh, they would lend us chairs, tables, you know, dishes to cook in and eat with. We had nothing of that sort. And and the the church rallied around and people came to our door and gave us chairs and mats and everything, little bits they had to spare, which was wonderful, most inspirational. So that that's uh, how it got us a bit started. Right, but uh, then uh, then your father your father uh, made a huge announcement to everyone. Oh gosh, yes, I'll never forget that. He he, he came back into the house. He'd been drinking with men, other men. And he, he was looking like he was a hero, and he said, "I've just signed up, you know, documents, and I'm joining the army, you know, expecting us to cheer." But my mother was so shocked uh, to hear this. You know, the, the, uh, our, our breadwinner, uh, uh, she, they didn't have uh, immigrants coming into uh, England, uh, did not have to follow the, uh, 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 the inv- join the uh, army, you know. Right. Uh, uh, immigrants weren't obliged to do that. And so uh, the very fact that he did it because he was drinking with his mates, uh, and they thought it was a good idea to show that he was brave and strong. But in fact, I mean, it was terrible. We were all crying. So the whole family's <laughs> being uh, torn apart, and the father's going off to war. Uh, yeah. Was he, I mean, it, well, it didn't matter at that moment in time, because you go to a very, very for the children, a kind of a dangerous situation. Yeah, yes. Initially, we were uh, channeled off to... The first, the first place we went to uh, out of London was Norwich, a nice, good, old-fashioned city. Uh, and there we were in the hands of a, a very elderly couple, and uh, all four of us in, in one little house. Anyway, uh, it wasn't a... a, a, a Few days later, the uh, inspectors for the vacuum system came to the house, and they were shut in the room with my parents, talk with my mother, talking away. And eventually, they asked my elder sister to go into the room and join them. And then, uh, half an hour later, we were told to pack up our things. We were going to be returned to London, and I never, never knew the reason for this until my elder sister was dying. And I asked her, what, why did we leave that house so soon? And she said, Ronnie, we weren't going to tell you. She said, the man of the house was a paedophile, and he was putting his hand under my skirt all the time. You know, that's, it's, that's what caused it. And I ran to the na- a neighbor, and the neighbor called the police. Mm. And that's how we were removed, and we went back to London. And the next thing they did, then they sent us right the way down to Camborne and Cornwall for a nice couple, really nice couple, looked after us for several months. You know, it was like going on holiday because they took us down to the seaside and 
we played games and had picnics. And, and a, a couple of weeks later, the man of the house received documents uh, ordering him to report to the locals, local local uh, office for for the army. And the woman who wasn't felt able to look after four children on her own in that house and had, with great apologies and tears, she put us on a train back to London. And then, as it happened, one of the worst wars, uh, raids of the war occurred when we were back at our original house. And that is, we had uh, um, German bombers were bombing the area we were living in because there was a, it was a big gas works area. And the bombs were falling down, and we could hear the sirens going, the explosions, and then we heard a, a, a plane crashing in our road close to us. And uh, when we woke up, the, we, we, went, we went into a thing called an Anderson shelter. You, uh, may, people may have heard of that at the start of the war. It was a, a sort of made with corrugated iron and dug into the garden of the house, and people used to go in there to protect themselves during bombing raids. Well, we were in there all night, and when we eventually arrived, came out in the morning, all the windows of our house were broken, and big sh bits of shrapnel were broken uh, from, of German airplanes were lying around the garden. And when we tried to pick one up, we got burnt. It was so hot. And we found a neighbor of ours got killed. She had a cat who was meowing in the garden piteously. And she went out to bring the cat in, and she was hit by a piece of shrapnel and got killed. So that was a, a friendly neighbor got, got lost, and other houses in the road had been completely shattered. So that was our, our first direct experience of the war. Right, and, and because of this being torn from your mom and your dad is gone, it really had its beyond comprehension, really, of the effect, psychological oh. effect, especially on your brother and sister, right? Yes. The, the older they were, the more they realized um, the consequences of what was happening. That the, myself and my younger sister were, were still too young. We thought it was a big, exciting adventure. Mm -hmm. We soon found out it wasn't. Because so, you, uh, you eventually... We were then, uh, um, the authorities... Um, uh, placed us in, in a new place. They sent us uh, out to Essex, uh, a place, a little tiny village called Stock in Essex. And um, we were lined up in the schoolroom. And um, uh, people came and looked and looked at us. And, and <laughs> so my brother, who was a very attractive, blonde, blue-eyed blue boy, uh, someone says, Oh, I'll have him. And the... Uh, a woman in charge said, I'm afraid you'd have to have his younger brother run as well. What, him? She said in, in this real London Cockney voice. Uh, and she said, yes, but you get double the money and you get their ration books. Oh, she said, oh, they, that, that's different then. Okay, yeah. I'll take the little bugger as well. So your brother uh, was six and a half and you were three? Yeah, I was four by the four? stage. Okay. I can't a bit older by that. And uh, the girls, um, the uh, the authorities, knowing the impossibility of placing four children from one family, so put, sent the two girls to a convent 
Yeah, it was a it was a, a, a very strict order of nuns who didn't speak much and weren't exactly in in for entertainment. And so the poor girls remained in that convent for five years, and had a, it was a very barren time for them. The, the nuns obviously didn't beat them as such, but they were punished in other kinds of ways because nuns who'd given up their good life expected children to learn to pray and be quiet and, and meditate. But they, that, that doesn't come naturally to small children. And uh, they, they, had, they had probably a worse psychological time than my brother and I. But you had more <laughs> physical abuse with, with no where you stayed. No physical abuse, but just psychological Psych- abuse. Psychological? Okay. Yes. Hmm. It was dreadful for the poor things. My elder sister never got over it, and she blamed... She thought it was a, my mother and father were just trying to get rid of them. She thought that's why we were stuck in that convent. And she, the, there was antagonism between my elder sister and my parents. My father had gone, gone by this time. Uh, but she, she blamed my mother for putting her in there. But of course, my mother didn't have a choice in it, in the matter. And there was awful tension between them. And eventually uh, she managed to, uh, she uh, got training as a nurse and became a nurse at a local hospital. And she lived in the nurse's home rather than the, in the family house. So and, you're, and, you're, there, Steve. and your two sisters and your older brother really had, they suffered tremendous psychological damage. Oh, yes. They were. Well, then, you know, as, as events developed as they grew up and tried to add uh, normal work and jobs and their uh, their psychological state was not very good and they were not holding jobs not getting on well with other people so that that was the sort of side effect that you had from from being locked up in a convent i think uh, um, as as we got older uh, my brother joined the royal marines and uh, uh, and I had been with him all the time. I wanted to do the same thing, but I wasn't as fit as him, so I didn't get accepted by the Royal Marines. Instead, I was able to join the Royal uh, the, um, the Royal Signals, the Signal Regiment, and I, I did that for three years. And I, I, I got on well. Like, yeah, it, was, it was interesting work because we were dealing with uh, um, you know top secrets and things like that. So mm-hmm. It was quite exciting for me. And out of your the four children, you seemed to fare the best, mainly because you were so young when you went through all of it, you think? Well, I don't know. The one who suffered worst was the very youngest, the, the little girl who was three oh, when it okay. all started. So she, she led the most awful life. If you ever attempt to read a chapter on her life, she got made pregnant very early on by an American GI. Sorry, not you, Steve. Sure, but, uh, I understand. She she made pregnant, and uh, uh, the the church and the the uh, church, the American vic, uh, priest, uh, had to find make inquiries to find out who this young man was, and they eventually traced him and brought him to a meeting with us and uh, uh, a, a distinguished prelate in the Westminster Cathedral, and between the all this, the poor man was overwhelmed by all this the power and influence, and he, he agreed to marry uh, my younger sister. He did so, uh, and uh, two months later, the, he was recalled to the States 
by by the authorities there, bringing his new wife with him, and who who just was about to deliver their baby. And after the baby was delivered, he immediately divorced her, and she was suddenly there in America, with with no no husband for no father for the child and no money, and she uh, then I mean went on a terrible terrible course for. Uh, bouncing from one man to another. Uh, she was divorced, married and divorced seven times. Mm. Uh, uh, that was, and she could, she was always looking to be happy. She said, people don't want me to be happy. Mm-hmm. And I, I was, as young as I was, I kept trying to tell her that you don't get happiness by looking for happiness. It's, you only get happy when you're actually doing good things and helping other people. She didn't understand that. Uh, was understandably because uh, she she just felt miserable and she never had a successful relationship with anybody, and she died very early on and was she'd lost her lung through smoking. She'd be she was an alcoholic. She had um you know um diabetes and she, that mixture of things killed her uh, in her fifties. Mm. And I was the only one capable in my family able of going over to America to a funeral. Well, and thus the title, Luck of the Irish, very uh, ironic, obviously, with your title. And the Luck of the Irish, I guess, because most people don't understand, they always think that that's such a positive phrase. Yes, they do, don't they? Yes. Unless people, for any reason I can't understand, had read bits of Irish history and found out from the Irish were although a rebellious lot we Irish were, and the, the, uh, we, all, our, all the lands and the good property and the good fields you know, for agriculture were, were taken by uh, you know, distinguished uh, people in England. Uh, lords and ladies were given chunks of Irish land. And so always this resentment of the, the Irish who remained was being, having lost all that opportunity of making the success of the country never did, you know, and so they, they, they just constantly, you know, this is eventually how the, uh, um, the um, IRA got started in later years, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, to try and fight for, you know, make enough noise and trouble for them to go, go away and leave Ireland to the Irish. They did, it, it, ultimately, it did succeed, but not before, you know, everyone in England right. thought the Irish were a lot of of gangsters, you know, blowing faces up and things like that. But uh, it was the Irish who were death, who were being held under the heel of the... There was something like several thousand British soldiers stationed in Ireland continuously. A little waste of army soldiers. Right. Well, Ronnie, we've about run out of time. Uh, the author, his name is Ronnie Carroll, and the... Of course, the title, Luck of the Irish, poignant saga of a Irish family arriving in England just at the outbreak of World War II. Ronnie, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's available through most uh, online booking Like I don't know you have Amazon in America, sure. but there's, a, there's online uh, book sellers all mm-hmm. around the world. And just by going to your local online a site like, like in England, it is Amazon, and uh, just put the name of the book, and then you can buy it direct, and it will be sent by the you know, immediate post 
and arrive as a little parcel. There you go. Meantime, of course, we are opening up uh, small private bookshops, but it's the big ones like Amazon, who I see online right. uh, booksellers that are the ones that you should go to. Well, thank you very much. Until Thank you very much, Ronnie, for being with us and sharing your story, which obviously uh, really uh, takes us right there, right into the midst of all the trauma and the tragedy of these events back during World War II and, of course, the the, uh, effect that that had on you and your brothers and sisters or your brother and sisters and, of course, the effect on your mom and your dad. Uh, Thank you so much for being with us on Ex Libris on air. Thank you for having me. I wish everybody else good and better luck than we had. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for you to be a rock star. Get ready to rock with Rock Talk and Craig Deswalt. And learn how to achieve rock star status in your industry every Tuesday afternoon at 2, 1 Central on Toginet.com. Craig Deswald is the creator of the Rock Star System for Success. Craig will share easy tips and strategies on how entrepreneurs and businesses can use outside-the-box marketing strategies to stand out from the competition. Each high-energy show will feature interviews with celebrity rock stars as well as business rock stars. For more on Craig, the show, and the Rockstar Marketing Boot Camps, check out the website, CraigDuswalt.com, so you can learn how to be perceived as an expert and celebrity in your field, so more people come to you to buy your services and products. Then, get ready to be a rock star with Rock Talk and Craig Duswalt, Tuesday afternoons at 2, 1 Central on Druggynet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Blood for Blood, Crove's a Crove. And the author is Mark Schuckert. And Mark joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Mark. Hello, how are you doing? Great to have you with us. And uh, you're going to take us to, I guess, a, a place in our minds and hearts. Uh, and of course, uh, this is the, the real world, uh, as you put it. This is uh, two of the American government's greatest frauds. Uh, we're going to talk about the Vietnam War and the drug war, and it pulls no punches in its criticism of the state of affairs we now live in, and also you have a warning, red lights, <laughs> alarms, <laughs> This book might be dangerous to your political health. So, so there, right? 
That's correct. Yes, that's the way it is, and you're going to stick to it. And Well, Mark, tell us about yourself, your background, of your military background as well, and then why you wrote the book. Okay. Uh, I grew up in California, in the, in the uh, northern California, that is, um, and uh, I was... Uh, uh, spent a little bit of time hunting and fishing, of course. Uh, I was a firefighter for a while. I joined the United States Navy uh, in early 1964. Um, I was already in the Philippines when the Tonkin Gulf uh, issue came up. I went on board the USS Valley Forge, LPH-8. That means landing platform helicopters. And we carried battalion landing teams, uh, of Marines up and down the coast of Vietnam making raids. That's what we did. So obviously you were right there, right on the front line, so to speak. Well, I was on the edge. Right. The Marines actually went in and did all the work. They did the heavy lifting. I just put them close to shore. But you could feel it, I'm sure, right? Oh, sure, sure. You, know, you were you were at war. and and Well, it was war to us. That's right, exactly. So, uh, what else have you, I mean, what led to this book? What was, there must have been some events along the way that led to you writing the book. Well, what bothered me um, <clears throat> quite some time ago is when I was going to Humboldt uh, University, there was a drug raid up in the mountains uh, where a, uh, an individual was shot down uh, by the sheriff's department making one of these pot raids. And they shot him in the foot in a hail of bullets and uh, they just let him bleed to death. And that always stuck in my mind. Um, and what I've been able to do is take quite a number of incidents where the police have shot down people and uh, compiled a book. And uh, though the book is fiction, many of the incidents are absolutely true and correct. And that's sort of where what the seed was all about. I mean, that's, that planted the seed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what happens when a person can fight back? Um, so what, what, what do we really have here? We have a Vietnam veteran and from the Vietnam War and the drug war. And essentially what happens in the book is they both collide in the northern, northern California mountains and they catch a small family in this particular event. And then what happens from there on? Uh, I would say that the uh, the book is uh, <clears throat> uh, politically damaging to most people's political health, mostly because it makes a number of statements like um, uh, slavery wasn't abolished; it just changed forms. I always thought that was kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. And it goes on to say, uh, <clears throat> "Can we appeal to the system for change?" Well, you can, but it's a waste of time and money. If we look at a guy by the name of Henry Adams, he wrote uh, over 100 years ago, everything has been decided except for one thing, but the proletariat, that's the working class, will work for. Otherwise, the working class people really have no say in government at all. And that was 100 years ago. So what it really comes down to in the end is uh, we the people are essentially irrelevant to the state except for to fight for it, or to be the object of that fight. So thus, these wars, these wars, uh, where so many are 
casualties and injured, uh, whether it's on the home front and like the war against drugs, which has never really accomplished anything, has it? Not a thing. Spent a lot of money. Yeah, made a lot of money for the system. Yeah, spent a lot of money, made a lot of money for the system, put a lot of people in jail that probably shouldn't have been there, most of them. Yeah, most of them are fairly harmless. Right. In fact, there's uh, probably no more harmless person on, on in the world than a heroin addict that's actually on heroin. I mean, in jail isn't, isn't where they needed to be. If we're going to spend money, we need to spend money to help them, right? Yeah. You know, get I off the so. stuff. Yeah. Yeah, what they were hooked on. But the American way is to pass a bunch of laws, send in the police, beat them all up, you know, throw them in jail, piss them all off, and... Uh, then, of course, after they've gone through the system four or five times, they're, they're totally useless. Right. Except right. to the state that makes money off of that person in jail. So your title, Blood for Blood, then Krav Zakrav. Uh, tell us what Krav Zakrav means. That means blood for blood in Russian, in the Russian language. So the tide of the book, what is that? Okay, what, what comes, where that comes from is my protagonist in the in the book marries a Russian woman and they go up into the mountains to live their own life. Well, of course, nobody can be left alone and they're not left alone. So there is a raid on their particular villa and she is killed. So what the protagonist does is he adopts the World War II partisan blood oath, which at the end says blood for blood, death for death. And it's in the first, the whole oath is in the first part of the book. Mm-hmm. So that's where that comes from. Well, you say that you want the readers to learn uh, about guerrilla tactics and reasons for actions against the state. <laughs> what, what is that about? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're going to learn it. <laughs> okay. <you're laughs> anyway. Gonna, yeah, you're going to learn it. <laughs> so that's what you're, I mean, you're, you're laying out a very realistic scenario here. Yes, I am. I mean, it could really happen. Uh, it could really happen. And probably has happened. Right. There's, there's like, uh, you know, I mentioned in here, there was a particular drug raid uh, where an individual was shot uh, 28 times mm. by the police. What they did was they made a raid, they busted in, and they ran right into somebody's 44 Magnum of which two officers were killed, and of course the rest of the police team shot up the place and killed this guy, and they just kept filling him up full of lead. Well, that happened about 10 miles from where I am right now, uh, in a little town called Eden, believe it or not. Hmm. I just kind of rearranged it so I could uh, write it into the story, but it's, it's going on all the time. So are these collisions, the way the system is, are, are they inevitable? Yes, they are. There's no doubt. Because they're not, not based on any sort of reality. The reality is probably 30% or 40% of the American people have smoked uh, marijuana. You know, so... Right. Uh, probably shouldn't have it illegal. So what we're really seeing is prohibition via another means. That's all we're really seeing. Mm-hmm. They legalized booze, so guess what? We've got to chase somebody else around. And when they legalize marijuana, if they do, they'll we'll chase somebody else right. around. Which is, seems to be occurring here and there, at least sure. in states are, tr- are trying to do that, whether the federal government will go along. 
Sure. Um, who knows? Well, but well, take take for instance also like the like the witch hunts uh, back in the 1660s. As soon as they decided that <clears throat> we're not going to prosecute witches anymore, the first person they prosecuted was a Quaker that came off the boat and they killed her. And it just goes on and on and on and on. So a collision will occur sooner or later, and a serious one. Is that what we're headed towards? Oh, I think so. We've already had one revolution. It was called the American Civil War. Mm-hmm. Now, they can, the North can gussy it up all they want, but uh, unfortunately, the southern states had uh, all the rights in the world to uh, do what they did. Now it's called states' rights. We're supposed to be talking about that even today. Yeah, but let's understand that uh, Simon P. Chase, who was uh, Supreme Court Justice way back when, he said states' rights were abolished at Appomattox. Hmm. Keep that in mind really? when we talk about states' rights. Hmm. So what really did happen? We had a major change during the Civil War, not by law, but by the bayonet. Mm-hmm. So is the federal yeah. government even a legal government? I don't know. And hundreds of thousands of people dead. Yes. Right. So your your book uh, is called A Page Turner. Uh, it's brutal in content. I mean, so you're going to get real raw with us, huh? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so, as you said previously about we didn't get rid of slavery, it just changed form. So who are the slaves today? Oh, the working class people. They okay. always are. All right. Now that now they pay their own way. They don't have a master paying their way for them. Mm-hmm. But it's all still the same. So the work for less. So your characters end up uh, in this collision with uh, the system, the government, and uh, what what can you give us from the story that will kind of uh, give us a flavor, maybe a scene or two, or or you know how realistic it is? Well, I can I can give you maybe what um, three life life lessons. Okay. Um, essentially, we're all victims of our experiences. Therefore, we read in the book there but for the grace of God go I, which I think is very important. Uh, Americans tend to be very, very judgmental, and it's very, very easy to fall into the system and be arrested and be accused and be convicted and all that sort of stuff. Uh, half my friends, uh, you know, and many of the people that I went to Vietnam with, uh, they've all served time in jail. Is that, their, is that their thanks for their service? Yeah, that's their thanks. And it's always been so. How about uh, war itself, uh, be it foreign or domestic? Uh, here I'll quote myself. If a person were to survive it, it became a twisted disease forever ripping at the survivor from the inside out. Everybody that's been touched by war is ruined. It serves no one but the few, even though the many are always the excuse. All of us are going to be saved by the government, but there's only a few corporate administrators that uh, reap any reward out of this thing. Those who didn't go to war. Yeah, exactly. And third, innocence dies hard, but it still dies. So what's being dealt with in the book itself is a 
is a number of people that are no longer innocent, especially the protagonist. And he's gotten to the point where he says, nothing else works except warfare. Mm. And he is, he is uh, twisted. He's diseased. He's all of those things. He's one of those survivors that uh, essentially has little soul left, if there's any at all. You know, this could happen to anybody. Even the people that are coming back from Iraq, Afghanistan, and who knows how many other wars we fought. Right. We fought probably about 200 different wars since, uh, since the end of World War II. And probably some more to come. More to come. Because the world is upside down, and we're going to get in the middle of it. <laughs> sooner or later. And as for a piece of uh, an excerpt for the book, uh, I have a small piece here. Um, he knew them for what they were, judgmental and freakish. But in the end, the propaganda machi- machine would make him out the weirdo, the aberration. It's how they were. From the moment they, without mercy, without any feelings at all, blew away his wife and his friend Tom, he was thrust into the world of government agents and bureaucrats who looked at him as no more than a human piece of trash. As the years went by, he looked at them the same way. No more human than a piece of trash, puffed up, but without substance. Wow. That takes you right into an emotional, um, huge valley. Yes, yes it is. Yes, it yes. is. Well, Mark, your book, Blood for Blood, Krov's a Krov, Mark. Krov's a Krov. Krov's a Krov. Uh-huh. And your last name is Shukert, Mark Shukert. Uh, tell us how to get your book, Mark. Well, Ex Libris has it, Ex, Ex Libris uh, online, but Amazon has it, um, Barnes & Noble has it, and probably another half dozen outlets. Well, thank you so much for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Yes, okay. Thanks a lot. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.